Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. Today, I'm joined by an extremely special guest that has had has been on my two interview list like far too long, and that is Dr. Jonathan Light. And I'm going to introduce Jonathan. We're going to chat through a lot of different things and kind of bounce around. I'm going to take a quick break, grab sponsors, help make the show possible. Want to hit them, and then we'll be right back. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. Jonathan is someone that I've been fortunate enough to get to know with his work with Dr. Michael Bug on the best veterinary podcast in Canada. So I'm going to preface it with Canada. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's a great podcast, right? So it's the Thank veterinary you. project. I've been a guest on there twice and it's been a ton of fun each time. Always have fun conversations. So I highly, highly recommend checking it out. They're all over social media as well, publishing good content. So check it out. Jonathan is the CEO of Mosaic Veterinary Partners and he's a strategic advisor to Vetsy. Jonathan has scaled and grown many practices and responsible for some of the largest specialty practices and hospitals in Western Canada. Five out of the six, I think is what we just talked about. So there's some experience there at one time. Yeah. 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 So you have some experience in managing and running successful uh, hospitals. So we're going to bounce around on different topics. I want to pay you a a big compliment because I would say you are a polymath. You have a lot of interest. You have a lot of knowledge of a lot of different areas and I'm excited to explore those. So Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, I appreciate it and appreciate coming on the podcast. And it's unnerving a little bit being on the other side, not being able to ask questions. So I may not be able to help myself and throw the question back at you, Isaiah. And as you said, also always enjoy our conversations. And one of the most fun parts is we can debate really well. We've done that in both of our podcasts together. And so therefore, I'm interested to see where this conversation goes. Thank you very much for having me. Totally. We'll see how much trouble I can get myself into with getting stuck into something where I'm like, dang, John, that's a really good point. I don't know. <laughs> but let's you've try, seen, let's, let's try it. Yeah. But you've seen the corporate and non corporate world of veterinary medicine. You've had success in both. And I really just wanted to kind of paint a picture for the listeners of the history of how you got to where you're at today. So, again, CEO of Mosaic Veterinary Partners. You didn't just graduate, leave vet school, and become a CEO of a, a large group there. So, can you kind of paint a picture and let us know how you got there? 
Sure can. So I don't feel like I'm that old out of vet school. I'm a 2009 grad from Western College of Veterinary Medicine in Saskatoon. And I joke with friends and colleagues that I already feel like I'm on my fourth career in veterinary medicine in the last 13 years. And I love that. I love that about veterinary medicine. Recently, I was on with a classmate that I haven't spoken with since 2009. He and I you know, split ways and he went in a different direction, finished a residency. And one of the conversation points that we had was, his comment to me that said, Jonathan, I always knew you're going into business. I knew that from day one in vet school. And as people do when they take on different niches or interests, et cetera, mine have always been in business since before veterinary medicine. And I looked at veterinary medicine no different as a conduit to be able to create great teams, businesses, and as a result of that, have a fulfilling career in life. And that's what we're still on that path. And I say we as myself and my family. I started off in emergency medicine in a hybrid busy practice and did that on purpose to gain skills. And after a year and a little bit on that, felt like I had a good base, went and locumed a year and a half out, which some people thought I was crazy for doing. At the time, locuming wasn't what it is today. And that was a great ability to see and view what different practices look like. From a business standpoint, I don't have an MBA. I didn't go to school for my undergrad in business. So I said, I better go get some experience. So did that in sales roles. Again, in a role where people looked at me as a sales rep and went, you're a veterinarian, but yet you're a sales rep. Loved it. Every time I heard that, I was going in my head, fantastic. I have some skills learning to do that if I had ego or pride too much, I wouldn't give myself the ability. So I learned how to sell. Still like doing it today. And that gave me the ability then to come back to Canada eventually, join an operations role with ABC, who is now BCA Canada, and enjoyed the next four and a half years there gaining skills knowledge through a lot of wins, a lot of failures before now going out on my own and having the opportunity to join with Mosaic just over two years ago and now taking on the CE role as of recent. So I think the idea of business opportunities in veterinary medicine, of thinking like, I think there's a wonderful opportunity for young veterinarians to go out and, and become owners and develop their clinical skills. And I think there's a lot of suitors that will be able to buy those businesses at a young age. You don't have to be 65 and be like, hey, you know what? I think I'm ready to retire. You can do a lot of different things in vet med, but you can also, you don't have to just do it on the clinical side. You did that and you talked about selling, which I think is interesting. We'll get into that in a second. But the idea of the blue ocean, I've used that term for my work, right? Like, hey, you're a financial advisor that focuses on working within veterinary medicine. Why? I'm like, well, there's a blue ocean because there wasn't a lot of people doing the work, handful of good people coming in now. But there's so much opportunity to do a lot of cool stuff. So I would love to hear you kind of riff on that topic in just how veterinary medicine provides you those opportunities to go do a lot more than just the clinical skills that you're trained for going through vet school. Absolutely. I think there's a foundation when you come out of vet school and there's this somewhat thought that you must go into a clinical path, but that's not the case. And or you can start in a clinical path expand on your skills and knowledge, and then go into a different area. And in veterinary medicine, whether you have an MBA, whether you have a specialty, whether you are just a DVM, and I mean just a DVM, I'm just a DVM. And I think there are fantastic opportunities available. The main piece that I see is, are people willing to get out there to connect, to meet and feel a little bit of discomfort on their way of looking into new opportunities? I've had a number of individuals that have reached out to me, whether it's early or into their mid 10 to 15 year career and say, Jonathan, I want to switch it up. But for whichever reason, whether it's family, finances, et cetera, or geographic location, I'm stuck in this one area. My comment back is, what can you do 
outside of feeling stuck that could still bring you fulfillment, joy, and meet your financial needs. And in veterinary medicine, I think that is a blue ocean, especially as we move forward with technological advances, needs that are outside the normal framework for a veterinarian or a veterinary professional in being in practice. And I'm one of those examples. Let's look into the crystal ball that's there. Like, where do you think technology takes some of the roles of the veterinarian that could be outside of the clinical setting? Do you have any examples or ideas or is that it's rapidly changing? It's rapidly changing. I'm off to Portland next week to go to the Veterinary Innovation Summit to meet with some of those that are thinking technologically, what does veterinary medicine look like five or 10 years down the road? Right now, I see telehealth platforms. One, you know, you mentioned in the intro that I'm a strategic advisor to where there is needs that clients are asking for that we are not able to fulfill right now based on shortage of veterinary professionals, based on shortage of times due to COVID animals that have come into play. And thirdly, due to us not having the veterinary professionals in place to meet the demands of the public. Therefore, technological advances such as telehealth, such as remote work, aid and help veterinarians to still meet the needs of those clients, which is first and foremost what we are responsible for. And I think it's only going to get better and different as we move along. Yeah. And as you have, we talked about the the top, like you're in a new role. And one of the things that I was asked from a listener, he owns a clinic, he's brought on some associates and he's getting to the point where it's hard as he's scaling to not be the doctor that the patients see. It's been his He's smart enough where he didn't name it after himself. And sometimes I see people that name, like, why, if you want to grow, why are you naming it after yourself? But he didn't do that. But, you know, everyone got to know he was the, let's say the rock star, right? They wanted to see him. How do you allow or help make those conversations to make that transition for growth into scale? Again, you worked with some of these really large hospitals that probably had some dynamic doctors that people wanted to see, but you can hire other really great, smart people too. So how do you foster or use good communication to allow that to happen? Any tips there? I think both are possible. I think you consciously, so for myself, I've done a startup here in the last two years. That startup, when I went to hire the associates, hired team members, one of the first discussions we had in our walk and talks in terms of setting this up is acknowledging that I was not going to be the practicing veterinarian in that business. Saying that right from the start is both freeing as well as very transparent for your associates, your team members to know that, yes, that owner mentality of building the relationships with the main clients and they're going to go to the owner, that's not there from day one. That's easier when it's a de novo, when it's a startup. For those that are existing and those that go through that experience timeline and may want to step back, well, there's where, again, it's a conscious choice and then a transition planning and a recognition through your clients over time that Dr. X might no longer be available. So you may need to go to Dr. Y and that's all right because she provides all X treatment and care and amazing communication, et cetera. That is a conscious choice that needs planning in order to be successful. And the third piece that I bring to that is there's certain models within veterinary medicine allowing that to be easier done than others. I've worked in hybrid practices with 18 plus doctors where depending on the style of medicine performed by that veterinary made it easier to pass clients back and forth. And then you've worked in some smaller practices, which are two, three, four doctors, where guess what? Those clients, they want to see that particular doctor. And that's all right. It just has to be consciously planned and consciously chosen which method you want to do. And I think it's a team approach that helps that to be as successful as possible. Sure. And then 
let's talk about ownership or ownership opportunities. So there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast that maybe they are an associate, they have a desire to have ownership. Maybe they're already an owner and want to retain people, or maybe they're within a corporate entity and they're like, Hey, I want some equity. So there's the idea of like economic versus entrepreneurial ownership. And I think it's great, but how do you look at ownership and bringing alignment in the mission and, uh, focus of a practice. How do you think about that? Again, as you are taking on a new leadership role. That is a complex question. Well, that's why I get to ask them and you just get to give me good answers. This is the fun when <laughs> I get to turn the tables on you, right? <laughs> that is the truth. That is a question that I think needs to align with what you spoke about to what the vision, the mission, the strategy is of that particular clinic. And do those individuals that want to come into an ownership stake, whether it is a de novo or a clinic that's been in existence for decades, is that relationship and that structure and that vision mission aligned with what the veterinarian's views are of the future as well? When they don't, it will not work. When you're not conscious and have that communication up front, it will not work. When you don't plan consciously and work to that end together, knowing that there's compromise in every relationship, whether it is owners coming in or owners leaving, then it will not work. That's the negative. The flip side of that is in this day and age with the transition of many people retiring and corporate practices and younger veterinarians wanting to get a stake, which I think more should, in my view, I think there's lots of opportunity to do it well when it is Again, consciously planned, it looks like that's going to be the theme of the, the podcast today. And it's a complex discussion. It really is because then there's financials that are involved. There's planning that's involved. There's contracts that are involved, all which, again, take time to move forward in a conscious way. So let's talk about you know building up the team as well. And to anyone that is paying attention, right, the big word on everyone's lip is inflation. But with that, just payroll and staffing and maybe some pressure from folks saying, hey, for me to show up and for me to cover the two biggest expenses, which is energy and food, both of those are significantly higher than what they were before. I want to tie that into how have you addressed it or thought about it? And then how do you think about price increases? Because I think most veterinarians that are owners that I talk to about price increases well, we want to be somewhere in the middle. We don't want to be the highest. We don't want to be the lowest. And there's like this very unscientific method of price increases, which is funny coming from a group of people that are usually very much like, this is why I do what I do. And this is the, but then it's like this big issue is just like, kind of like, oh, you know, whatever happens and we'll kind of figure it out. Again, another big question that has complexity to it. The first point, when you're looking at price increases for your vet clinic, you need to look at what your costs of business are in relation to where you want to be what has been budgeted and or what your plans and goals are. In this day and age right now, in my view, in veterinary medicine, we should never be ashamed for price increases. We're already behind the curve. And if we want to support our teams in the measure of better resources for our team members, better pay, better work environments, whether that's through equipment, through needs, through resources, we need to be able to support that through the profits of a business. If that business isn't profitable, then we're not going to be able to do that, which is going to lead to less people in the practice doing the same amount of work, burnout, all the other negatives. And it's really complex right now. And I think we're failing at that in veterinary medicine right now. I don't have the golden answer either. I do know that in taking on price increases, which are shared across the board, across the world right now, I feel in veterinary medicine, we're somewhat ashamed to take them. 
and we shouldn't be. There's a time and a place, and unfortunately, or fortunately right now, it is one of them. And I was listening to another podcast yesterday, which I really liked, and the conversation went like this. The wage increases that we're seeing coming to the veterinary industry right now, would they have happened if it wasn't for the veterinary shortage and inflation now coming into B over the last 12, 24 months? And the individual on that podcast had answered, no. No, they probably wouldn't have happened. And I actually have to agree with that person. And that makes me sad in veterinary medicine because we're already reacting, in my view. We're already behind the eight ball where we provide a lot of value to our clients and the producers and somewhat are behind the curve for what that value is in terms of price increases in order to be able to support our teams. So in that end, Right now, as of August of 2022, we've already started budgeting in a serious budget for 2023. It's the earliest I've ever done a budget and need to do it in detail so that we know what we can do in terms of price increases in order to be able to help know that we have the resources available to do the pay increases that are in action and have to happen. They've been happening more on the DVM side, and I'm now seeing them on the technician technologist side, which I'm also really impressed with. Yeah. So why is it so reactive versus proactive? Why is vet med like always slapped with this? Like, oh, we're reactive over it. Cause I hear that all the time. Is there any reason for why it is so slow to change that you've seen or can put your finger on? My opinion and only my opinion. That's why you're here. We are at times afraid to make money or we think that money or profit is a bad, even though there's so much good that can come from it for our teams and for the people that we support, our clients, our producers, et cetera. I think that, I think we are a humble group. I think sometimes we're too humble for the value that we bring for our clients, our producers, et cetera. And we need to own that more. And part of that owning it more is to recognize that we have value and that value has a dollar amount associated it at times. There's so many more intangibles that are, are non-dollar related, but in this context, we do not give ourselves the benefit of the doubt for the value we bring our clients. And as a result of that, we are always catching up and we're still catching up. That comes at a cost and that cost is we need to make up for it. And I think veterinarians are, and again, this is a broad stroke across the industry, which is wrong, but it's my opinion is we're really bad at giving ourselves that value. Another thing we talked about before we hit record and we've chatted other times is just like the delegation aspect of veterinarians, you know, this like, I'm going to micromanage or I can't let other people do this because I am the one that has to do it. And it kind of goes actually back with the question earlier on the scaling and being the doctor, right? But why do you think veterinarians struggle with delegation? I think it's as a context, somewhat of history, somewhat generations, and somewhat the transition that is now undergoing in veterinary medicine. I can only speak specifically to Canada and Alberta where I sit on council. And in council here, we really are speaking about this often right now in terms of veterinarians. What are the three things that our technologists cannot do? They cannot diagnose, they cannot prescribe, and they cannot perform surgery. Outside of that, in Alberta, here in Canada, we have a duty list, we have a jobs list or a task list that technologists are able to do. And yet, majority of veterinarians aren't following it to the full degree, which then leads to our veterinary technologists not feeling like they're using their skills to the fullest, they're not being paid to the fullest, and therefore they go seek another job or in a different industry. I think, again, this last couple of years of veterinary shortages has brought that to the forefront, and I'm happy with what I'm seeing in terms of utilizing our support team to the betterment of the whole. 
And for the next generation of veterinarians, there is no doubt that the old way of controlling everything is not going to work. We're already seeing that play out. And you know what's also happening as a result of that? There's more turnover. So for those practices that are not engaging in utilizing their team to the best of their benefit, there's more turnover in the double digits. It costs in turnover and costs in burnout. That costs the business more money and therefore there's less profitability to share. So it is either a negative cycle or a positive cycle. In my view right now, we're just starting on a positive cycle, which I think is gonna go a long ways for supporting our support team members that make such a big difference in our teams. And it has to happen. And I think part of it's a generation, part of it's an experience, part of it is reality of that met in 2022. Sure. And talking about just kind of supporting and thinking about the team in general, we've talked about how sometimes it's hard to spend money, you know, investing your facility, equipment, team through CE. What have you seen over the years in the decisions that you've made across various different jobs, roles and responsibilities? Right now, obviously, you get to make a lot of those decisions for a lot of people, which is kind of cool. But how do you think about where do we allocate across the spectrum with the facility equipment and like just the team through CE and continue to learn. Again, another episode in itself, Isaiah. As I've involved or evolved in my leadership roles, I'm starting to recognize that it is so much more than just allocating a dollar figure to a pizza party or a three month challenge. It's so much more involved than that. It's communicating with your support teams on a regular basis. It's having support people such as with Mosaic, we have regional operation directors now, which are also involved in in big corporates, but a smaller number of clinics. So they get to know the individuals. I just had one of my regional directors was out for supper with two of the technologists yesterday. That's resource allocation to get to know individuals on a personal level, to know what's happening in their lives and how we can help support, challenge and grow them in their career outside of just increasing a wage or giving them a pizza party. That evolution in my understanding means it's also a lot more work, especially as we take on new practices and practices that are maybe going through their own evolution of culture, which also needs to happen. And that resource allocation states, I need to spend a lot of money and time and effort upfront and knowing that the cycle of turn is not gonna happen quick. It takes years in order for somebody to both believe you see the action that you've gone through and that credibility and it doesn't happen quick and it doesn't happen with just allocating and saying hey i'm going to buy you this piece of equipment yeah that'll work short term long term doesn't work still it's a culture piece and that is a continuing to learn it over time sure do you think there's an advantage for the i own one or two hospitals clinics versus the corporate offering where it's multiple to do a better job at building that culture i mean i have my inclination of like where I think that answer, or do you think you can take the culture at scale? And I think there's been some good examples out there, but I'm just curious your thoughts. How do you build culture at scale? I guess is that's the trillion dollar question. I think if people could crack the code, they would be a really good business right there. But yeah. What do you think about that? I think there's some groups in veterinary medicine that are doing that well. I really do. I'm more cognizant of the North American groups. And I think there are some groups that I look up to as a small group of clinics, we have seven clinics right now and growing. And I look up to some of the groups in the States and the United States that are doing a great job of that. And it is all around culture. It's all about defining who they are and who they aren't. And if you aren't part of that group, or if you don't mesh with it, that's all right. It's not the place for you. And what we've taken as a strategic move over the last year and a half, two years with Mosaic is really trying to better define what that looks like for us so that our people 
understand who we are, who they want to align with, and then a culture grows as a result of that with strategic plan, time, support, learning. That's easy to do on a single clinic basis, but hard to do also on a single clinic basis when the owner is in charge of everything. And that's another area of veterinary medicine, which I think is in transition, is those that are doing it well as an independent are learning how to delegate and outsource and use technology to their benefit at the same time as creating an environment where the culture can grow. Because I think there's pros and cons to both, being a single practice as well as being within a corporate group to the employee as well as the owner or employer. There's both ends to my view. Yeah. So going back to, let's say you are that singular to location, the delegation or leveraging something that you can outsource. Is there anything there that you would point to that you look at and say, yeah, that moves the needle versus "Mm, that's nice. Provide me an example of what you're thinking. So let's say taking your calls to an outside third party. So the phone's not ringing off the hook. Let's say it is doing something where maybe you're referring out a certain thing that you hate and you've just done it because you've done it or you're offering a service that doesn't make any sense versus saying, hey, we're not going to do that anymore. But any thoughts on kind of what moves the needle from a delegation standpoint? And maybe it's just not a good question. Yeah, I'm thinking about it on the fly here. And I think a portion of it as a veterinary owner in a single practice is sometimes not delegating some of those tasks, the administrative tasks that can be done. I listened to a podcast again. I listened to lots of these recently where one of the owners said that he had to go and do payroll. I said, what's he doing payroll for? That is not the task that he should be undertaking right now or ever. That's or bookkeeping. <laughs> or bookkeeping. Or taxes. That's what your bookkeepers for, your accountants for. That's what your practice administrators for, your clinic manager to help work through those timesheets so that you're focused on the important things. And I don't care if you're a single doctor practice or a six doctor practice. That can both be done from an economic means in 2022 via the technological means that are out there. That's what I mean. Because then your focus is not on your people. Your focus is doing tasks that should not be done by you. And again, that ebbs and flows. So therefore, if you're on the ground and you're not doing those tasks, you're more likely to be on the floor. You're more likely to hear when people are talking about, oh, we might need this resource. And then from an economic standpoint, if you're actually up to date with your books and reviewing them and looking at them from a KPI perspective or a financial perspective with a budget, which many people don't, they just follow what their bank account's doing, then you can resource allocate appropriately and say, ah, I can afford this now versus if you didn't know what you didn't know, you'd say maybe that's a next year. I'll give you a perfect example of that right now. I think the ultrasound unit has the new x-ray. There's lots of individual clinics and corporate groups that are bringing that ultrasounds in and, and units in. And for those that are looking to move into practices, they want to have that ability to provide that type of service. Many veterinarians I'm still hearing are, that's too expensive to bring in. They are expensive units, without a doubt. But what's your cost of not bringing that in? What's your cost of not spending the time to understand what the culture of the clinic needs to be in order to recognize whether that's a service we should bring in? And as a result of that, I'm going to get another tech in. I'm going to need another doctor in because they see that as part of their growth and challenge in that clinic. See how they all wrap together? And if we're wasting our time doing things that could be easily delegated, we're not there for the important pieces. And that just builds and builds and builds over time. And then you have more problems and then you have more issues and then your culture goes awry. And again, I'm not speaking from the choir. I'm not preaching. I still make these mistakes on a daily basis, but that's the goal in terms of ensuring that you're at the right place to help build culture with your team. And that's only one little aspect. 
Absolutely. And it makes me think of the idea of the the $100,000 hour work, the $10,000 hour work, the you know $1,000 hour work, the $100 hour work, the $10 hour work. And how yeah. many veterinarians that should have, you know, I'm only doing $1,000 hour plus versus they're still doing these tasks that just don't make any sense. And it's like to get the freedom to grow because maybe you feel stuck. It's like, well, maybe you need to get some of that crap off your plate because you can't go and take the next step without removing something. You can't do more. Like we can only do so much. You aren't Superman or Superwoman where you can do everything. I'm right in the middle of that and as both an owner and partner in multiple practices. And then you have your life and your family and your commitments outside of work, which we all in this day and age also want to have. Again, it takes some conscious thought in terms of how I'm going to design my life as my co-partner on the veterinary project would say, in order to ensure that I have time to my advantage as opposed to a negative. And I struggle with that a lot still. Yeah. I'm going to ask one more, more serious. Well, they're all serious questions, but I have some fun ones I want to ask. So how do you view the public perception of veterinarians as a profession to the public? And I had someone recently tell me that the idea of working on production is a public PR nightmare waiting to happen. Any thoughts, feedback, your opinion on that? Yeah, I do. I've got a pretty straight opinion on it. I think in the right context, it works really well. I don't have any of my practices now on straight production. I've run those in the past. I think they can work really well in the right model. And when I mean model, I mean hybrid versus specialty versus general practice versus emerge or urgent care, I should say. And in the right model where everybody's on the same page, it can work well. And then you need a leader in there that can keep track of what's happening and really be able to close the reality gap at times when there might be issues that arise based on being straight on production, because I've seen them happen. And if you have that discussion quick and dirty and, and get to the bottom of it, things can go really well. I've seen it where doctors have done really well. I also think that in my personal view, I love the idea of salary and plus production incentive on top. And I don't call it a bonus. I call it an incentive where that veterinarian has an ability to do well and above their base salary in the context of working hard within that practice. I think that is a great model when, again, done well, kept in check and understood by both parties. I love it. I've talked a couple different times that I think some sort of pro-sal model makes sense, especially if inflation is higher. If I'm the associate and I know that I can hit certain metrics and increase my pay, I'm not waiting for a performance review to say, hey, what's my salary bump? Like it's already built in when you see those price increases. So that is something that I definitely agree with. And uh, yeah, no, I appreciate you entertaining yeah. that. So a couple, I, I know- Let me jump on that one thing as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, please. I think there needs to be transparency in the clinic that that is actually the production model that is happening, whether it's production, salary, sell pro, so that everybody's on board because there's responsibilities that happen across the team to ensure that everybody is transparent because sometimes there's the wrong signature that goes on the software. There's the wrong dispensing of medication, which should have been under somebody else, et cetera. If we're not transparent in that communication, then it becomes this hidden icky thing, which does not work well for culture in the long term. So I just want to add that point too, because I see some people shying away from that conversation as opposed to taking it head on and communicating in a really responsible, empathetic way with the entire team. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I appreciate that. So I have kind of two fun questions and then I'll let you ask anything that you want to ask, which is always dangerous, especially because you know me a little bit. So that might get me in trouble. 
So one thing, and we don't have video that comes out with a podcast, it's audio, but we can see each other as we're talking. You have a hockey poster behind. So, so being Canadian, what's the team that you cheer for from a hockey perspective? And did you play growing up? The team that I cheer for is the Calgary Flames. So that is where I grew up and I love, and we are looking forward to a great season for those that are in the NHL with some major changes happening on the Calgary Flames team, which I won't get into detail and bore people. I did grow up playing hockey. I had two goals since I was 11 years old, which was to make the NHL or become a veterinarian. And I always joke, well, we know exactly what happened. Yeah. Hey, 50% of those big dreams is pretty good. I like it. I like it. It, it turned out well. Yeah. And I always joke that uh, I hit the height of my hockey career at four, uh, 13, 14 years old. There you go. Yeah. It was all downhill from there. Sweet. Do you still play at all? One of the things that got brought up the other day was having some sort of mental health activity that's outside of vet med that helps someone stay grounded and focused. Is that hockey for you? Is it something else? Like, what do you do to to stay away from some things that are all just pure work. So in the background, it's a goalie that's on that picture that you're viewing. As a goalie, you have to be there all the time. I'm no longer able to commit that due to my work commitments and travel. So no, I'm no longer playing hockey. I'll pick up the odd time for those that need a goalie. My time is spent now. We have a gym in our basement, which my wife and I use on a daily basis. That's my making sure that I am staying committed to personal health for sure. Secondly, which I'm super excited about is squash. I hadn't played squash since my university days. I just got into it again in August. I'm now on the squash club here in Calgary and I'm really looking forward to getting back into it. I've got my first real pickup game on Sunday. So that I think is going to be new. And then on top of that, we are a very, very active family, whether that's rock climbing, skiing, swimming, biking now with the kids. We're all over everything. Single sport. We have a an extremely active family. It, it's what we do instead of watching TV. Sure. I love that. So the merge, Ethereum, we've talked about Bitcoin Ethereum together. Um, I have to ask your thoughts and is it something that's a positive? I know this will go over the head of most people listening, but that's fine because this is our conversation. It's a podcast that I get to produce. So I'm going to ask the questions I want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so I have yet to see it materialize that the proof of work going to proof of stake has benefited. And what I mean by that, I haven't seen gas prices decrease. We obviously haven't seen the price of Ethereum go the direction that some thought it would go and the flipping and whatever else. But that also is to general market conditions where I just saw as of this morning that Bitcoin, Ethereum being connected to the S&P right now is at its all-time high at 71%. They're correlated 71% together, which is the highest it's ever been. So mm -hmm. I think the success of the Ethereum network going to proof of stake is yet to be determined. And it's such early days, such yep. early days. I'm excited for it. I think it's definitely going to make a difference long-term for everything that's built on top of the Ethereum network. I'm excited, but way too early. Sure. I think that's a fair answer. Do you get concerned on the, the validators that validate each block because of proof of stake owning more allows you to, to validate? So I think it was of the first, there's like seven that are going to dominate, you know, 70 plus percent of it. Does that cause you any concern that now seven people get to make those decisions or no? You surpass my education. So therefore <laughs> I cannot make something right. I don't know. So I love you it. Know I have you know, you I have a devious plan. You know what it is. So. <laughs> so you tell me, Mr. Bitcoin maximalist. I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, basically you're going to have seven to eight entities that will control everything. So if they say, hey, Isaiah, we didn't like XYZ that you did. Now you could no longer have a say, we'll slash you, we'll do whatever. That's the issue with proof of stake is the richer, and it's kind of recreating the legacy financial system. 
That is my thought. That's my concern. It's been talked about in a lot more technical terms than that. Proof of work is distributed and decentralized at its heart. Proof of stake is more centralizing, but it will help bring down costs and other things, but that's not fundamentally the thing that you should be focused on. You want decentralization if you're trying to build something new. So I think the dream of decentralization compared to the reality are two different things. I think that the view that Web3, Bitcoin, Ethereum, other being decentralized, unfortunately, my less naive self says that the governments are going to get their hands on this before it comes to any play that is to the majority of people that have no idea what we're talking about right now. I'm going to close it there, even though I have more stuff to say, because I know that we need to be cognizant on time. And I want to open it up for a question that you can ask anything top of mind, anything you want to know. It can be personal, professional, off the wall. It can continue this conversation. Anything top of mind you want to ask? I've got a big one for you. The title of your podcast is the Veterinary Success Podcast, correct? Correct. You get to interview a lot of different individuals in the field. And I've listened to you interview those. When you think of success in this space, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So success in this space, I think is being able to kind of dictate what your day looks like. Honestly, I think that's what for a lot of people, it's the time freedom. So I think for most, it's not necessarily like, Hey, I'm trying to juice out the every dollar. And you talked about that a little bit earlier as well, but it is being able to create something that they're proud of and something that they believe in and having the freedom to do what they want to do. And I think that ultimately is a factor that ties into a lot of conversations that maybe is not specifically discussed, but I think even hinted at it a couple of times in this conversation of being able to shape and go and do things and be able to allow that is is big. And I think there is a tie to finances, right? Like I know that for me, you talked about like you need to have the financial resources to be able to take maybe a risk on doing something different, but maybe that does then provide more time back to do the fun family things or to allow your schedule to be more open so you can actually just like think and breathe and be creative on whatever it is you're doing with work versus just heads down. I'm trying to get through the day, wake up, do the next thing. Like that gets really old. So yeah, success is like, it's a great question to ask. It's like the hardest thing to, I think, put your thumb on it. When you feel successful, you know it, like the energy that you have, you go through day, you're like, Ooh, that's the kind of day that I want to have versus you go through days. And I think anyone, even if they're living their successful life, right, is going to still have a day where like, man, that was rough. Like that was hard and it was not enjoyable. So that's what I would say. Great answer. And if it was on my podcast, I'd follow up. But guess what? It's not my podcast. Yeah. (laughs) I know we're coming close to time. I want to give you time back. Is there any closing thoughts, anything you want to leave with? Plug the podcast, plug anything else that you think that people should uh, know about how to follow you. I think we're in a great transition period in veterinary medicine. I'm really excited to go to the Veterinary Innovation Summit here in Portland next week and listen to the thought leaders and some of the true CEOs and and those that are, so to say, in charge at the top of these major organizations. I think there is going to be winners and losers in this next evolution in veterinary medicine. And what do I mean winners and losers? Those that culturally are able to evolve with what's happening and those that aren't. And I think that is a conversation that people shouldn't be afraid of. It is difficult. It's hard. And darn it, it's hard on a daily basis when you're just doing business. But I think that's what's needed for veterinary medicine in our industry to move forward. And I think that's exciting. And I don't know, I'm an eternal optimist to a degree. 
and acknowledging that I think the next 10 years are going to be pretty pivotal in veterinary medicine. I'm excited to be a part of it. Awesome. Thank you for putting 10 years because I was going to kind of be like, hey, you can't leave without saying like, what's this time frame? So 10 years, I tend to agree with you as well. Where's the podcast at? What do they search for again? Yep. The Veterinary Project. So search that on Spotify, Apple, et cetera, and you'll find both Dr. Michael Bug and Dr. Jonathan Light as we speak with different individuals in and out of the veterinary industry to helping people live their fullest life. Perfect. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Vice versa. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.